0: Hi everybody, Carla here, and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. As always, I welcome your questions, your comments, and your suggestions at classics at gmail.com, and also you can interact with the Q&A at the end of the episode descriptions. So now, with that out of the way tonight, I have for you two stories from the French, specifically from Guy de Maupassant, who was born in Tour France in 1850. He's considered one of the masters of the short story, and I would love to share with you tonight two of his many short stories that I hope you will enjoy. Now, the first short story, called Les mauvaises Maisons, The Wrong House, I couldn't find an exact publication date for that particular story. Now, the second story, called "Le Collier de Diamant, The Diamond Necklace, was published in February of 1884. So now, I give you two great pieces by Guy de Maupassant. Let's enjoy these great stories together here at Carla Reads the Classics. Les Mauvais Maisons de Guy de Maupassant The Wrong House by Guy Maupassant. Quartermaster Verajoux had obtained a week's leave to go and visit his sister, Madame Padoy. Verajoux, who was in garrison at Rennes and was leading a pretty gay life, finding himself high and dry, wrote to his sister saying that he would devote a week to her. It was not that he cared particularly for Madame Padoy, a little moralist, a devotee, and always cross, but he needed money, needed it very badly, and he remembered that, of all his relations, the Padois were the only ones whom he had never approached on the subject. Père Verjoy, formerly a horticulturalist, at Angers, but now retired from business, had closed his purse strings to his scapegrace son and had hardly seen him for two years. His daughter had married a Padoy, a former treasury clerk who had just been appointed tax collector at Van. Veraju, on leaving the train, had someone direct him to the house of his brother-in-law, whom he found in his office arguing with the Breton peasants of the neighborhood padoy rose from his seat held out his hand across the table littered with papers and murmured take a chair i'll be at liberty in a moment he sat down and resumed his discussion the peasants did not understand his explanations the collector did not understand their line of argument he spoke french they spoke breton and the clerk who acted as interpreter appeared not to understand either It lasted a long time, a very long time. Veraju looked at his brother-in-law and thought, what a fool. Fadoi must have been almost 50. He was tall, thin, bony, slow, hairy, with heavy arched eyebrows. He wore a velvet skull cap with a gold cord Van Dyke design around it. His look was gentle, like his actions, his speech, his gestures, his thoughts. All were soft. Veraju said to himself, what a fool. He himself was one of those noisy roisterers for whom the greatest pleasures of life are the cafe and abandoned women. He understood nothing outside of these conditions of existence. A boisterous braggart filled with contempt for the rest of the world, he despised the entire universe from the height of his ignorance. When he said nom de chien with esprit, he expressed the highest degree of admiration of which his mind was capable. Having finally got rid of his peasants, Padoy inquired, How are you? Pretty well, as you see. And how are you? Quite well, thank you. It is very kind uh, of you to have thought of coming to see us. Oh, I have been thinking of it for some time, but you know, in the military profession, one has not much freedom. Oh, I know, I know. All the same, it is very kind of you. "'And Josephine, is she well?' "'Yes, yes, thank you. "'You will see her presently. "'Where is she?' "'She's making some calls. "'We have a great many friends here. "'It's a very nice town.' "'I thought so.' "'The door opened and Madame Padoy appeared. "'She went over to her brother without any eagerness, "'held her cheek for him to kiss and asked, "'Have you been here long?' "'No, hardly half an hour. "'Oh, I thought the train would be late.' Will you come into the parlor? They went into the adjoining room, leaving Padoy to his accounts and his taxpayers. As soon as they were alone, she said, I have heard nice things about you. What have you heard? It seems that you are behaving like a blackguard, getting drunk and contracting debts. He appeared very much astonished. I never in the world. Oh, do not deny it. I know it. He attempted to defend himself, but she gave him such a lecture that he could say nothing more. She then resumed. We dine at six o'clock and you can amuse yourself until then. I cannot entertain you as I have so many things to do. When he was alone, he hesitated as to whether he should sleep or take a walk. He looked first at the door leading to his room and then at the hall door and decided to go out. He sauntered slowly through the quiet Breton town, so sleepy, so calm, so dead on the shores of its inland bay that is called Le Morbihan. He looked at the little gray houses, the occasional pedestrians, the empty stores, and he murmured, Van is certainly not gay, not lively. It was a sad idea, my coming here. "'He reached the harbor, the desolate harbor, "'walked back along a a lonely, deserted boulevard "'and got home before five o'clock. "'Then he threw himself on his bed "'to sleep till dinner time. "'The maid woke him, knocking at the door. "'Dinner is ready, sir.' he went downstairs. In the damp dining room, with the paper peeling from the walls near the floor, he saw a soup tureen on a round table without any tablecloth, on which were also three melancholy soup plates. Monsieur and, and Madame Padoy entered the room at the same time as Verju. They all sat down to table, and the husband and wife crossed themselves over the pit of their stomachs, after which Padoy helped the soup, a meat, helped the soup, a meat soup. It was the day for pot roast. After the soup, they had the beef, which was done to rags, melted greasy like pap. The officer ate slowly with disgust, weariness, and rage. Madame Padoy said to her husband, Are you going to the judge's house this evening? Yes, dear. Do not stay late. You always get so tired when you go out. You are not made for society with your poor health. She then talked about society in Van of the excellent social circle in which the Podois moved, thanks to their religious sentiments. A puree of potatoes and a dish of pork were served next in honor of the guest, then some cheese, and that was all. No coffee. When Verajou saw that he would have to spend the evening tête-à-tête with his sister, endure her reproaches, listen to her sermons without even a glass of liqueur to help him to swallow those remonstrances, he felt that he could not stand the torture and declared that he was obliged to go to the police station to have something attended to regarding his leave of absence. And he made his escape at seven o'clock. He had scarcely reached the street before he gave himself a shake like a dog coming out of the water. He muttered, heavens, 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 what a galley slave's life. And he set out to look for a cafe, the best in town. He found it on a public square behind two gas lamps inside the cafe. Five or six men, semi-gentlemen and not noisy, were drinking and chatting quietly, leaving their elbows on the small tables while two billiard players walked round the green bays where the balls were hitting each other as they rolled. One heard them counting. Eighteen, nineteen, no luck. Oh, that's a good stroke. Well played. Eleven, you should have played on the red. Twenty. Froze! Froze! Twelve! Ha! Wasn't I right? Verajou and ordered a dimitas and a small decanter of brandy, the best. Then he sat down and waited for it. He was accustomed to spending his evenings off-duty with his companions amid noise and the smoke of pipes. This silence, this quiet, exasperated him. He began to drink, first the coffee, then the brandy, and asked for another decanter. "'He now wanted to laugh, to shout, to sing, to fight someone. "'He said to himself, "'Gee, I am half full. "'I must go and have a good time.' "'And he thought he would go "'and look for some girls to amuse him. "'He called the waiter. "'Hey, waiter.' "'Yes, sir. "'Tell me, where does one amuse oneself here?' "'The man looked stupid and replied, "'I do not know, sir. "'Here, I suppose.' how do you mean here? What do you call amusing oneself, yourself? I do not know, sir, drinking good beer or good wine. Ah, go away, dummy. How about the girls? The girls? Ah, ah, yes, the girls. Where can one find any here? Girls? Why, yes, girls. The boy approached and lowering his voice said, you want to know where they live? Why, yes, the devil. "'You take the second street to the left "'and then the first to the right. "'It is number 15. "'Thank you, old man. "'There is something for you. "'Thank you, sir.' "'And Verajou went out of the cafe repeating, "'second to the left, first to the right, number 15. "'But at the end of a few seconds, he thought, "'second to the left, yes, "'but on leaving the cafe, "'must I walk to the right or to the left? "'Bah, it cannot be helped. "'We shall see.' And he walked on, turned down the second street to the left, then the first to the right and looked for number 15. It was a nice looking house and one he could see behind the closed blinds that the windows were lighted up on the first floor. The hall door was left partly open and a lamp was burning in the vestibule. The non-commissioned officer thought to himself, this looks all right. He went in and no one appeared, he called out hello there, hello. A little maid appeared and looked astonished at seeing a soldier. He said, good morning, my child. Are the ladies upstairs? Yes, sir. In the parlor? Yes, sir. May I go up? Yes, sir. The door opposite the stairs? Yes, sir. He ascended the stairs, opened a door, and saw sitting in a room well lighted up by two lamps, a chandelier and two candelabras with candles in them, four ladies in evening dress apparently expecting someone. Three of them, the younger ones, remained seated "'with rather a formal air on some crimson velvet chairs "'while the fourth, who was about 45, "'was arranging some flowers in a vase. "'She was very stout and wore a green silk dress "'with low neck and short sleeves, "'allowing her red neck covered with powder "'to escape as a huge flower might from its corolla. "'The officer saluted them, saying, "'Good day, ladies.' The older woman turned round, appeared surprised, but bowed. Good morning, sir. He sat down, but seeing that they did not welcome him eagerly, he thought that possibly only commissioned officers were admitted to the house, and this made him uneasy. But he said, bah, if one comes in, we can soon tell. He then remarked, are you all well? The large lady, no doubt the mistress of the house, replied, very well, thank you. He could think of nothing else to say and they were all silent but at last being ashamed of his bashfulness and with an awkward laugh he said do not people have any amusement in this country. I will pay for a bottle of wine. He had not finished his sentence when the door opened and in walked Padoy dressed in a black suit. There you gave a shout of joy, and rising from his seat, he rushed at his brother-in-law, put his arms around him, and watched him round the room, shouting, Here is Padoy! Here is Padoy! Here is Padoy! Then, letting go of the tax collector, he exclaimed, as he looked him in the face, Oh, you scamp! You scamp, you! You're out for a good time, too! Oh, you scamp! And my sister, are you tired of her? Say... As he thought of all that he might gain through this unexpected situation, the forced loan, the inevitable blackmail, he flung himself on the lounge and laughed so heartily that the piece of furniture creaked all over. The three young ladies, rising simultaneously, made their escape while the older woman retreated to the door looking as though she were about to faint. And then two gentlemen appeared in evening dress and wearing the ribbon of an order. Padoy rushed up to them. Oh, judge, he is crazy. He is crazy. He was sent to us as a convalescent. You can see that he is crazy. Verajou was sitting up now and not being able to understand it all. He guessed that he had committed some monstrous folly. Then he rose and turning to his brother-in-law said, What house is this? But Padoue, becoming suddenly furious, stammered out, "'What house? What, What house is this? Wretched, scoundrel, villain, what house indeed? The house of the judge, the judge of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, you rascal, rascal, rascal!' And that's the conclusion of La Mauvaise Maison by Guy de Maupassant, The Wrong House." And I laughed when I first read that story. I just thought, you know, that guy just needs a complete do-over because he had everything so wrong. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed the story. Please stay tuned for the second story. Here at Carla, reads the classics. La Collier de Diamonds, de Guy de Maupassant. The Diamond Necklace by Guy de Maupassant. The girl was one of those pretty and charming young creatures who sometimes are born as if by a slip of fate into a family of clerks. She had no dowry, no expectations, no way of being known, understood, loved, married by any rich and distinguished man, so she let herself be married to a little clerk of the Ministry of Public Instruction. She dressed plainly because she could not dress well. But she was unhappy as if she had really fallen from a higher station, since with women there is neither caste nor rank, for beauty, grace, and charm take the place of family and birth. Natural ingenuity, instinct for what is elegant, a supple mind are their their sole hierarchy, and often make of women of the people the equals of the very greatest ladies.' Matilda suffered ceaselessly, feeling herself born to enjoy all delicacies and all luxuries. She was distressed at the poverty of her dwelling, at the bareness of the walls, at the shabby chairs, the ugliness of the curtains. All those things of which another woman of her rank would never even have been conscious tortured her and made her angry. The sight of the little Breton peasant who did her humble housework aroused in her despairing regrets and bewildering dreams. She thought of silent antechambers hung with oriental tapestry illuminated by tall bronze candelabra and of two great footmen in knee breeches who sleep in the big armchairs made drowsy by the oppressive heat of the stove. She thought of long reception halls hung with ancient silk, hung with ancient silk and the dainty cabinets containing priceless curiosities of the little coquettish perfumed reception rooms made for chatting at five o'clock with intimate friends, with men famous and sought after whom all women envy and whose attention they all desire. When she sat down to dinner before the round table covered with the tablecloth in use three days, opposite her husband, who uncovered the soup tureen and declared with a delighted air, Ah, the good soup. I don't know anything better than that. She thought of dainty dinners, of shining silverware, of tapestry that peopled the walls with ancient personages and with strange birds flying in the midst of a fairy forest. And she thought of delicious dishes served on marvelous plates and of the whispered gallantries to which you listen with a sphinx-like smile while you are eating the pink meat of a trout or the wings of a quail. She had no gowns, no jewels, nothing, and she loved nothing but that. She felt made for that. She would have liked so much to please, to be envied, to be charming, to be sought after. She had a friend, a former schoolmate at the convent, who was rich and whom she did not like to go see any more because she felt so sad when she came home. But one evening, her husband reached home with a triumphant air and holding a large envelope in his hand. There, he said, there is something for you. She tore the paper quickly and drew out a printed card which bore these words. The Minister of Public Instruction and Madame Georges Rampino request the honor of Monsieur and Madame Loisel's company at the Palace of the Ministry on Monday evening, January 18th. Instead of being delighted, as her husband had hoped, she threw the invitation on the table crossly, muttering, What do you wish me to do with that? Why, my dear, I thought you'd be glad. You never go out, and this is such a fine opportunity. I had great trouble to get it. Everyone wants to go, and it is very select. They're they're not giving many invitations to clerks. The whole official world will be there. She looked at him with an irritated glance and said impatiently, And what do you wish me to put on my back? He had not thought of that, he stammered. Why, the gown you go to the theater in, it looks very well to me. He stopped, distracted, seeing that his wife was weeping. Two great tears ran slowly from the corners of her eyes towards the corners of her mouth. What's the matter? He answered. By a violent effort, she conquered her grief and replied in a calm voice while she wiped her wet cheeks. "'Nothing. Only I have no gown, and therefore I can't go to this ball. "'Give your card to some colleague whose wife is better equipped than I am.' "'He was in despair. He resumed. "'Come, let us see, Matilda. "'How much would it cost, a suitable gown, which you could use on other occasions? "'Something very simple.' She reflected several seconds, making her calculations and wondering also what sum she could ask without drawing on herself an immediate refusal and a frightened exclamation from the economical clerk. Finally, she replied, hesitating, I don't know exactly, but I think I could manage it with 400 francs. He grew a little pale because he was laying aside just that amount to buy a gun and treat himself to a little shooting next summer on the plain of Nantier with several friends who went to shoot larks there of a Sunday. But he said, Very well, I will give you 400 francs and try to have a pretty gown. The day of the ball drew near and Madame Loisel seemed sad, uneasy, anxious. Her frock was ready, however. Her husband said to her one evening, What is the matter? Come, you have seemed very queer these last three days. And she answered, It annoys me not to have a single piece of jewelry, not a single ornament, nothing to put on. I shall look poverty-stricken. I would almost rather not go at all. You might wear natural flowers, said her husband. They're quite stylish at this time of year. For ten francs, you can get two or three magnificent roses. She was not convinced. No, there's nothing more humiliating to look poor among other women who are rich. How stupid you are, her husband cried. Go look up your friend, Madame Forstiere, and ask her to lend you some jewels. You're intimate enough with her to do that. She uttered a cry of joy. True, I never thought of it. The next day, she went to her friend and told her of her distress. Madame Forstiere went to a wardrobe with a mirror, took out a large jewel box, brought it back, opened it, and said to Madame Loisel, Choose, my dear. She saw first some bracelets, then a pearl necklace, then a Venetian gold cross set with precious stones of admirable workmanship. She tried on the ornaments before the mirror, hesitated, and could not make up her mind to part with them, to give them back. She kept asking, haven't you any more? Why, yes, look further. I don't know what you like. Suddenly she, dis- she discovered in a black satin box, a superb diamond necklace and her heart throbbed with an immoderate desire. Her hands trembled as she took it. She fastened it around her throat outside her high necked waist and was lost in ecstasy at her reflection in the mirror. Then she asked, hesitating, filled with anxious doubt. Will you lend me this, only this? Why, yes, certainly. She threw her arms round her friend's neck, kissed her passionately, then fled with her treasure. The night of the ball arrived. Madame Loiselle was a great success. She was prettier than any other woman present, elegant, graceful, smiling, and wild with joy. All the men looked at her, asked her name, sought to be introduced. All the attachés of the cabinet wished to waltz with her. "'She was remarked by the minister himself. "'She danced with rapture, "'with passion intoxicated by pleasure, "'forgetting all in the triumph of her beauty "'and the glory of her success, "'in a sort of cloud of happiness "'comprised of all this homage, admiration, "'these awakened desires and of that sense of triumph, "'which is so sweet to a woman's heart. "'She left the ball about four o'clock in the morning.' her husband had been sleeping since midnight in a little deserted ante room with three other gentlemen whose wives were enjoying the ball. He threw her he threw over her shoulders the wraps he had brought, the modest wraps of common life, the poverty of which, contrasted with the elegance of the ball dress, she "'She felt this and wished to escape "'so as not to be remarked by the other women "'who were enveloping themselves in costly furs. "'Loiselle held her back, saying, "'Wait a bit, you catch cold outside, I'll call a cab.' "'But she did not listen to him "'and rapidly descended the stairs. "'When they reached the street, "'they could not find a carriage "'and began to look for one, "'shouting after the cabmen passing at a distance.' They went toward the seine in despair shivering with cold at last they found on the quay one of those ancient night-cabs which as though they were ashamed to show their shabbiness during the day are never seen around paris until after dark it took them to their dwelling in the rue des martyrs and sadly they mounted the stairs to their flat all was ended for her as to him he reflected that he must be at the ministry at ten o'clock that morning "'She removed her wraps before the glass "'so as to see herself once more in all her glory. "'But suddenly she uttered a cry. "'She no longer had the necklace around her neck. "'What's the matter with you?' demanded her husband, "'already half undressed. "'She turned distractedly towards him. "'I have, I, I've lost Madame Faustier's necklace,' she cried. "'He stood up, bewildered. "'What? How? Impossible!' They looked among the folds of her skirt, of her cloak, and her pockets everywhere, but did not find it. You're sure you had it on when you left the ball? He asked. Yes, I felt it in the vestibule of the minister's house. But if you had lost it in the street, we should have heard it fall. It must be in the cab. Yes, probably. Did you take his number? No. And you, didn't you notice it? No. They looked, thunderstruck at each other, At last, Loiselle put on his clothes. I shall go back on foot, he said, over the whole entire route to see whether I can find it. He went out. She sat waiting on a chair in her ball dress without strength to go to bed, overwhelmed without any fire, without a thought. Her husband returned about seven o'clock. He had found nothing. He went to the police headquarters, to the newspaper offices to offer a reward. He went to the cab companies everywhere, in fact, whether he was urged by the least spark of hope. She waited all day in the same condition of mad fear before this terrible calamity. Loiselle returned at night with a hollow, pale face. He had discovered nothing. "'You must write to your friend.' said he, that you have broken the clasp of her necklace and that you are having it mended. This will give us time to turn round, she wrote at his dictation. At the end of the week, they had lost all hope. Loiselle, who had aged five years, declared, we must consider how to replace that ornament. The next day, they took the box that had contained it and went to the jeweler, whose name was found within. He consulted his books, it was not I, madame, who sold that necklace. I must have simply furnished the case. Then they went from jeweler to jeweler, searching for a necklace like the other, trying to recall it, both sick with chagrin and grief. They found in a shop at the Palais Royal a string of diamonds that seemed to them exactly like the one they had lost. It was worth 40,000 francs. They could have it for 36 so they begged the jeweler not to sell it for three days yet, and yet they made a bargain that he should buy it back for 34,000 francs in the event they should find the lost necklace before the end of February. Loisel possessed 18,000 francs which his father had left him. He would borrow the rest. He did borrow, asking a thousand francs of one, 500 of another, five louis here, three louis there. He gave notes, took up ruinous obligations, dealt with usurers and all the race of lenders. He compromised all the rest of his life, risked signing a note without without even knowing whether he could meet it, and frightened by the trouble yet to come, by the black misery that was about to fall upon him, by the prospect of all the physical privations and moral tortures that he was to suffer, he went to get the new necklace laying upon the jeweler's counter, 36,000 francs. When Madame Loisel took back the necklace, Madame Forstier said to her with a chilly manner, you should have returned it sooner. I might have needed it. She did not open the case as her friend had so much feared. If she had detected the substitution, what would she have thought? What would she have said? Would she not have taken Madame Loisel for a thief? Thereafter, Madame Loisel knew the horrible existence of the needy, she bore her part however with sudden heroism that dreadful debt must be paid she would pay it they dismissed their servant they changed their lodgings they rented a garret under the roof She came to know what heavy housework meant and the odious cares of the kitchen. She washed the dishes using her dainty fingers and rosy nails on greasy pots and pans. She washed the soiled linen, the shirts and the dishcloths, which she dried upon a line. She carried the slops down to the street every morning and carried up the water, stopping for breath at every landing. "'and dressed like a woman of the people. "'She went to the fruiterer, the grocer, the butcher, "'a basket on her arm, bargaining, meeting with impertinence, "'defending her miserable money, sow by sow. "'Every month they had to meet some notes, "'renew others, obtain more time. "'Her husband worked evenings, "'making up a tradesman's accounts, "'and late at night he often copied manuscript "'for five so a page. "'This life lasted ten years.' At the end of 10 years, they had paid everything, everything with the rates of usury and the accumulations of the compound interest. Madame Loiselle looked old now. She had become the woman of impoverished households, strong and hard and rough, with frowsy hair, skirts askew, and red hands. She talked loud while washing the floor with great swishes of water. But sometimes, when her husband was at the office, she sat down near the window and she thought of that gay evening of long ago, of that ball where she had been so beautiful and so admired. What would have happened if she had not lost that necklace? Who knows? Who knows? How strange and changeful is life? How small a thing is needed to make or ruin us? But one Sunday, having gone to take a walk in the Champs-Élysées to refresh herself after the labors of the week, she suddenly perceived a woman who was leading a child. It was Madame forster still young, still beautiful, still charming. Madame Loisel felt moved. Should she speak to her? Yes, certainly. And now that she had paid, she would tell her all about it. Why not? She went up. Good day, Jean. The other, astonished to be familiarly, familiarly <laughs> tongue tied, the other, astonished to be familiarly addressed by this plain good wife, did not recognize her at all and stammered, But madame, I do not know you. You, you must have been mistaken. No, I am Matilda Loiselle. Her friend uttered a cry, Oh my poor Matilda, how you are changed! Yes, I have had a pretty hard life since I last saw you, and great poverty, and that because of you. Of me? How so? Do you remember that diamond necklace you lent me to wear at that ministerial ball? Yes, well, well, I lost it. What do you mean you brought it back? I brought you back another exactly like it, and it has taken us ten years to pay for it. You can understand that it was not easy for us, for us who had nothing. At last it is ended, and I am very glad. Madame Forcier had stopped. You say that you bought a necklace of diamonds to replace mine? Yes, you never noticed it then. They were very similar. And she smiled with a joy that was at, at once proud and ingenious. Madame Forstier, deeply moved, took her hands. Oh, my poor Matilda! Why, my necklace was paste! It was worth, at most, only 500 francs! And that brings me to the conclusion of the two short stories by Guy de Maupassant. Thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. I ask you to please pardon my French. Uh, in the event my pronunciation was a bit off, I did give it a try. So thank you again very, very much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time.